Bill uh, and I have known each other since 1985. Uh, when we were both significantly less gray, uh, and Bill was the uh, interim pastor of my sister's congregation in Yafo, which is just outside of Tel Aviv, and um, I know he has lots of wonderful things to share with us. Um, and I'll limit my comments to prayer. So let's pray. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King, we thank you, Lord, that you call us into the work of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you bring us on board despite our insecurities and our hesitations and yes. reluctance, just like your servant Moses. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithful and sustaining work uh, in Bill and Diane's life and their ministry. Thank you for the good fruit that has been born and for providing for them. We thank you for bringing Bill here. We pray for ears to hear um, what you have for us to hear and learn tonight. Pray for the wisdom how to take what it is that you share with us and apply it. And we pray, Father God, as always, that you would have much honor and glory through everything that takes place this evening. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Okay. Ah, excuse me, she mentioned something, and uh, the brains, I'm still in Texas time. Uh, <laughs> What? Oh, yeah. 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 Over the Rainbow, and the story behind the song, Over the Rainbow, oh, yeah, and uh, an article great. on Jewish evangelism. So, if you would like these, um, they're going to be on this table right here. If you raise your hand, I'd give you one right now if you do want one. And uh, then you can come up with one. But that, that was all. That's all okay. Tadara Ba Rabbi Chaim. It's always good to be here. and. Uh, Colorado is kind of one of my places. I uh, uh, I was radically born again. I was a traveling hippie in 1970, and I was heading to San Francisco, you know, to to uh, uh, hate Ashbury. But I decided to stop off in Boulder, Denver. I spent the summer up above uh, Boulder in the Flatirons, talking to God in the mountains on mescaline, and then I met the Jesus people down in Boulder. And they witnessed to me about Yeshua, about Jesus, and uh, gave me a place in their hostel. And Yeshua just encountered me. That I couldn't sleep that whole night in that hostel because Yeshua, Jesus, was so present in that room and transformed my life and called me into ministry. That's 49 years ago now. <laughs> and I've never looked back. But also my father was stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs in the Army in 1950-51. 
So, and because of Chaim and Helene and Bill and Tracy and Yeshua Zion and others of you, I feel this is kind of one of my places, Colorado, so good to be here. Um, how much time do I have? Five hours. I'm kidding. <laughs> By eight. By eight, so 55 minutes. Okay, we have plenty of time. Well, Judy, thank you, Judy. Judy asked me to share kind of in two areas. So I'm going to do that. One area is just more personally how I reach out to Jewish people and, and some of the Jewish, direct, direct Jewish outreach we're doing right now. And then she asked me to share about the Kabbalah. So I'll share about the Kabbalah. That's the PowerPoint I have. Um, and that's part of this course that I've been developing. I got a brochure for those of you that are interested in it. Uh, I think this course is meeting a niche because it's a non-formal course. It's not a. It's not part of a seminary degree. It's not a formal part of a formal program. It's degree granting. We have those. We have one at Denver Seminary, Moody, the King's University, a few other in Messianic Jewish Studies. But those programs, as excellent as they are, they're expensive. A lot of people can't afford them, and they can't come away from their lifestyle and their work and go to a seminary. And they can't afford. It's not accessible to them. This course, I think, is, will, does give a good grounding in the Jewish world, but a lot cheaper and more accessible. So I think it's meeting a niche. I call it engaging the Jewish world, the 4,000-year story of the Jewish people and why it matters to you. And I've, I've uh, divided it into two modules. Module one is seven eras. Module two is seven essays, two E's. Divide Jewish history into seven eras. Look at each of those eras with an overview, which I call a, a uh, water ski over the, over the whole surface of the lake of that era. Each era is several hundred years. But then I have articles that, go, that are scuba diving that go deeper, too. I shared with Judy some of that material. Um, and that, with PowerPoints, and some of these PowerPoints are part of it. And then the second part is seven essays or seven, seven lectures, seven teachings on other more biblical theological aspects of the Jewish story of theology of the land, peace process, um, eschatology, the Jewish feasts and their prophetic and messianic dimension, um, uh, Israelology, topics like that. So that's what this is about. And if you if you would be interested, you can take one of these brochures. Um, so I'll share. I'll share parts of that when I get to the Kabbalah part. But let me share first about... May I? Yeah, sure. Let me share first about what Judy asked me to share about reaching Jewish people directly, Jewish evangelism. Not many people have great stories to tell, great testimonies of hundreds of Jewish people coming to faith. I mean, maybe Jonathan Burnus does because he went to Russia at a key time and held these Messianic festivals when the receptivity was so great the fruit was so ripe, it was just ripe for the picking, and they held these big festivals, and hundreds of Jewish people came to the Lord. But not many people in Jewish ministry or Jewish evangelism can report things like that. It's slow and it's hard, as those of you involved in it know. Um, but let me just share some things. I, I've been reminded of late that, uh, again, just again, that relationship is the key to everything. Building relationship. <laughs> Attachments, bonded relationships, loving relationships, feeling with people is really the key. And uh, been reminded lately with these 
Israelis that we're relating to now is that when I relate to them, I always attempt to relate to them not as uh, me or us reaching across a barrier to them, but but I'm part of them. Uh, I'm these Jewish people I'm reaching. We're us. We're already us. I'm already attached to them. I treat them as I'm already t- attached and bonded to them, because God has bonded us. It's the Ruth story. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you live, I shall live. Where you die, I shall die. There shall I be buried. May the Lord do so and worse to me if anything separates me from you. That's the Ruth love attachment bonding. And that's that's has to be there in Jewish evangelism. I hope none of us, from if we're Gentiles, we feel that oh we're Gentiles, they're Jews, and how do I you know there's a barrier there? How do I relate to? It? But even even Jewish believers sometimes feel like, as Jewish believers, they've crossed over into another camp, and now they're looking at the unbelieving Jewish world like us and them, and that that is uh, counterproductive. Jewish people are already us. I'm already us with them. I'm attached to them already. That's the Ruth message. So that's that's a key thing, I think. Um, and as far as methods, you know, there's all kinds of Jewish methods, Jewish evangelism methods, the Jews for Jesus, confrontive type of decades past, uh, all kinds of approaches. God uses all of them, has used all of them. Um, some are more effective than others, but it's really not about method or technique. It's about relationship. Um, over the last ten years, though, I've, we've used storytelling. And I think some of some of the people here have been to my, the storytelling workshop we did uh, about well last summer, last July, um, and telling Bible stories. Helene knows about this. I did a course on it at Denver Seminary, in fact, using some of that storytelling in 2011. It's already that long ago. That's when I met David. David Cass was in the class. 2011, eight years ago already. But I've still been doing that, done workshops in Israel. The one we did in L.A. for uh, three years running. We had a Jewish Seekers Bible study for three years running. Um, And we did a story every Tuesday night. The method I used, the STS method. Told the story from the the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Not read it, but tell it. Orally from the heart, have the have the group retell it with you, so it gets into their mind, and then discuss it through good questions. That's that's an effective way to engage anybody, but also to engage Jewish people because it's not threatening, and because the stories of the Hebrew Bible are not threatening to Jewish people. They know that they're their stories, whether they believe them or not. They know that the stories of the Hebrew Bible are their stories, the stories of Israel, and they're happy to engage them. We had Jewish people come. One, one Jewish man in that three-year period came to faith through the group, through the story, Paul Kruger. Um, and uh, and uh, another, another four or five Jewish believers were coming and were edified and learned the method and were telling the stories. And um, I'm going to start up another group now in L.A. in May. And I'm going to call it Storatelling. I'm going to advertise it as Storatelling. With a small S and then capital Torah Telling. Storatelling. And the idea is we're going to tell tell and discuss the stories of the Torah. 
together. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we're praying that uh, Jewish people are going to come through the networks we have. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing, and you can pray for us in that regard. Something I do want to share that's pretty important right now is uh, an encounter that I think is providential. Uh, a little over a year ago, it was in October of um, 2017, a friend of mine and I were up in the mountains north of Los Angeles, San Gabriel Mountains, hunting. And uh, we were deer hunters up there. Colorado understands deer hunting, I think. Uh, we were up there deer hunting. And um, we'd hunted in the morning at dawn, and, and then towards noon we went and had a little siesta, you know. And uh, then we were, were going to come back like 2.30, come back and find a place to post again for the evening. When we came back to this place, it was very remote. There were no people around. It was up in the mountains. People were, no people around. We came back to our place about 2.30, and about eight cars pull up to our private place. Eight cars. Oh, no. Scare all the deer for five miles away. You know. Not only that, they got out of the cars and they were loud. And they had loud kids. Oh, man, you know. You might as well quit hunting and go home. But the closer we got to them, I could hear they were speaking Hebrew. (laughs) And my whole (laughs) orientation shift from resenting them to being drawn to them, because I love Israelis. (laughs) They were speaking Hebrew. So I went up to them and began to talk, and talking in Hebrew. And Most of them had already left on the hike in the mountains. There's only two women that stayed there. One was a young woman, she was so pregnant that she couldn't hike. So I started talking to her, and her name was Tao, is Tao. So we talked and established rapport with her and got contact information. Said we live in Pasadena. They said, oh, they live in Pasadena. Found out she, this group was from Caltech in Pasadena. Caltech in Pasadena. And that there are about 30 families of Israelis in Caltech, about 70 Israelis, which I've been living in Pasadena for 20-some years, never knew this, but there's been a group of Israelis at Caltech all this time. They're postdoctoral students in physics and science and cancer research. They're high-level, talented Highly educated Israelis that are here. They're scientists. That are most in their, most of them in their thirties with little kids. Okay, so wow. So we got to meet them, and we uh, they invited us to their Hanukkah celebration at Caltech. We went. We did a Hanukkah celebration uh, for them. I have some Chinese Christian friends in L.A. who love the Jewish people. In fact, they had a they had a prayer meeting every week for about three years just to pray for Israel. Once a week, just to pray for Israel. Love the Jewish people. So I told my Chinese friends about meeting these Israelis in the mountains. And it was close to Hanukkah. They said, oh, we'd love to meet them. We'd, can, we, can we rent a reserve room in a, in a Chinese restaurant? You invite all these Israelis and we'll just bless them. I thought, oh. I, thought oh, I don't know. Let me, let me think about that. I thought, would that be a good idea or not? And uh, the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, why not? What have we got to lose? These people love the Israelis. Let's do it. So I said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I invited the Israelis, and uh, five of them came to the restaurant. <laughs> so 
and one of them was Tal, the young lady I met. By that time, she'd given birth to her baby. Um, no, I think she was still pregnant. Yeah, she was still pregnant then. Uh, so they came, five Israelis came. One is a professor of mathematics at Caltech, uh, PhD, uh, in his 30s. And uh, it's Omer, Omer and, uh, and uh, Rebecca. And then the other couple is Tal, Tal and Tom. And they came. And But what was, what was really sweet about that night, the Chinese really, you know, they decorated for Hanukkah, blue and white, and mm-hmm. and. and Hanukkiot and Hanukkah music. The Chinese, you know. <laughs> the Israelis were blown away. Here's all these Chinese celebrating Hanukkah. But they enjoyed it. They sat at one table. And uh, they brought in the menu. We're treating you to anything you want to eat. And so we were eating. And, and then after the food, they, the Chinese Christians bring in this big cart full of gifts for the Israelis. And these weren't little gifts. These were gifts of Sets of china, dishes, and appliances, blenders, you know, big gifts. And they gave the Israelis, and they were like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, then one of the Chinese sisters, she stood up, she said, she looked at the Israelis, and she said, you know, I love Israel so much. I've been to Israel five times, and, and I'm studying Hebrew. I love Israel so much. She said, you know, I've learned to sing Hatikva. In Chinese, can I sing it for you? Wow. <laughs> and they, they said, sure. So she sings Hatikva in Chinese. <laughs> and then she says, she says, now would you sing it for us in Hebrew? Mm. Mm. So they did. <laughs> they sang it in Hebrew. And it was just a moment. You could feel the emotion in the moment. You could feel the warmth and the appreciation that they really felt loved. They felt appreciated and loved. That was a very special time. <laughs> so it's that, it's that relational dimension. But here's the thing. So we developed, we've cultivated a relationship for over a year now with the one couple, Tal and Tom. Turns out we found out that her name is Tal. Our second son's name is Tal. I told her that right away. We have a son named Tal. He was born in Israel. and She's four years older than our second son. We thought that was kind of special. But then I found out that her birthday is on the same day as our Tal's birthday. Wow. <laughs> we have two Tal's, her and our son, both born on the same day. Wow. So this year we had a, a two-Tal birthday party, tale of two Tal's, and we invited Tal and Tom, and now they have two kids, to our home, and we had a big cake that said tale of two Tal's, <laughs> and, uh, and I did a special bracha in Hebrew, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Shunatan Lanu Shnei Talim. They gave us two towels, you know, and so we're really building warmth of relationship. And we're at the point. I haven't, I haven't witnessed verbally about Yeshua yet to them, but now the relationship is at the point where I'm really, I think, I, I think it's really ripe and ready that the next time we see them, we're going to share about our faith in Yeshua, Yeshua's Messiah. Here's a key thing. You talked about prayer, I think, Haim. Tracy's been a, Tracy and Bill have been a supporter of us, and she's a prayer person. So she's been praying. Tracy's been praying for, praying for Tom and Tal and the other Israeli couple, uh, Omer, and, uh, Omer and Rebecca. And I really feel God has answered that prayer because these things are just your prayers. Because I, I went to a, an Israeli film night 
at the synagogue in Pasadena. Omer kind of distanced himself from us. I did, I did verbally witness to him because at the Chinese event, Omer said, what's with, he came to me, he said, what's with these Chinese? He said, they love Israel more than we do. <laughs> and I said, well, they're, I said, they're Christian Zionists. You know what that is? And so I had to explain to him. So I had to tell him, he drew it out of me. I had to tell him about Jesus, that Yeshua, they believe Yeshua is the Messiah. And so he said, and he, Omer said, you know, I've always learned to read the New Testament but never have. So I said, hey, give me your email. I'll give you one. I got one in Hebrew. <laughs> so I met him at Caltech for coffee, gave him a Hebrew New Testament, and, and shared my testimony more. But then he kind of withdrew. So we're still praying for him, but I think well, how your prayers have been answered is that I went to this Israeli film night at the synagogue, and Omer was there. And so I, you know, providentially ran into him again. We talked again. And, uh, then I went to the synagogue had a a, uh, a special speaker to speak about the upcoming Israeli elections and Netanyahu and his prospects and all that. <laughs> and uh, so they had a special speaker. I went to that and Rebecca, Omer's wife, was there. So I saw her. So it's like the Lord's still bringing them into our circle even though they don't really want to socialize like Tom and Tal do. But keep praying. Because that's part of the whole mix, is to pray that in relationship, the relationships mature to the point where it's going to be natural for me to share uh, about Yeshua with them very soon. So I hope I hope you continue to pray, and I will report to you. Uh, I'm I'm claiming them for for the Lord, for faith in the Lord. Um, come to the Lord. So, um, yeah, just to say that, and the whole thing of meeting them in the mountains, and the whole thing, of the, her name is Tal, and our son's name is Tal, the whole thing has the marks of a providential encounter, divine encounter, that isn't yet finished, that's in process. And we pray the process will be that they're going to come to faith in Yeshua. So that, maybe that's about all I'll share on that. Anybody have any comments or questions you want to share about that? Or ask me, or... Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about Romans 9 through 11? Romans 9 through 11. Wow, that's a big topic. <laughs> uh, if I did that, I wouldn't have time for Kabbalah. What's most important? I think, I think Romans 9 through 11 are the climax of the epistle to the Romans. I think the first eight chapters are Paul's theology systematic theology of salvation Jews and Gentiles both included in sin but then he comes to the end of chapter 8 it's almost like a you know what who can separate us from the love of Messiah it's like a, a climactic then he moves right into 9 through 11 and he deals with the mystery of Israel that's the climax of his theology and when he gets to chapter 11 to the olive tree metaphor and the, the roots and the trunk of the olive tree being Israel, the natural branches and the grafted in wild olive branches, that, that's ecclesiology. That's the theology of the people of God. And uh, it's what we should be guided by. It's what, the, it's what Gentile Christianity 
has uh, directly disobeyed for centuries. Paul said, don't be arrogant about the root because it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. But the Gentile Christian church has always been arrogant of the Jewish people, triumphalist. And uh, the Senate, you know, there's a there's a, the statue of the two uh, women on different friezes on cathedrals in Europe of synagogue and ecclesia, synagogue and ec- church and synagogue. And uh, synagogue, synagogue, symbolizing Judaism, or the synagogue, she's blindfolded, has a broken, broken staff or scepter, and holds a Torah in her hand. She's blindfolded, looking down, ashamed. Whereas Ecclesia is this glorious woman with a crown and a scepter. That's, that's Christian triumphalism over Jewish, over Judaism, Jewish people. So they, you know, that's a direct disobedience of Paul in Romans 11. And I just emphasize again relationship. Jewish people are not them. We're us. They are them. The Jewish people are us. Whether you're Gentile or Jewish, they're us. And we form attachments with them. We talk to them as if they are we already. You know. Um, there's a new book out on on uh, Romans nine through eleven by Grant Berry. You know who he is? Grant Berry. It's called 9-11. It's a takeoff on, you know, September 11th, 9-11. That the church needs a wake-up call. The church needs a 9-11 wake-up call of Romans 9 through 11. <laughs> so, that's a good book to study. I haven't uh, finished it yet, but it's key. And it's a, those are key chapters the church needs to study. And recent Pauline scholarship over the last, like, 20 20, maybe 30 years, recent Pauline scholarship, Roman scholarship like James D.G. Dunn out of uh, University of Durham, his, his commentary on Romans in the Word Commentary series, you're probably familiar with that, Chaim, very good treatment, that understands, understands chapters 9 through 11 as climactic. Um, so there's, there's good new studies on that. I think I'll move into this on, the, on Kabbalah because uh, I had some fresh insights on it. If I can get this working again. Okay, okay there you go. Um, this is kind of halfway through my era four, lesson four, in engaging the Jewish world is on the Islamic era, Islamic era, um, and in the Islamic era, I include the rise of Sephardic civilization, Sephardic Jewry, and then in the European age after that, I include the rise of Ashkenazi Jewish civilization, because the Sephardic Jewish age was really on the rise in uh, during the Islamic period when the when the when, Mus- when the Muslims ruled Spain, Al-Andalus was the Muslim Moorish uh, Empire in Spain, okay, in the, in the uh, 12th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, Al-Andalus. It was the age of, uh, you know, Maimonides was one of the great rabbis who, who uh, flourished in the courts of uh, Al-Andalus. Uh, it's often called the Spanish Golden Age. 
It's often thought of as one of great harmony between Jews and Muslims in Moorish Spain. And the Jews did have some freedom to pursue their religion and cultural activities. But their status was dematude. Have you heard of dematude? They were demis. That is, they were second-class citizens. And they had to pay 50% jizya. 50% tax on everything. Uh, and they had, when they paid that tax, they, they had to come and pay it personally to the authorities, publicly. They couldn't send an emissary because they wanted the Jews to feel publicly shamed and shown publicly that they are second class, that they're paying tribute to us. The Jews pay tribute to us. So though it was kind of a golden age because they weren't being killed or persecuted, toward the end of it they were, were, were as well, but for centuries they weren't being persecuted, three centuries maybe, uh, and killed, but they lived as demis, but they were allowed, allowed to, in cultural pursuits. And so a lot of the intelligent Jewish people did move into cultural pursuits, uh, into, uh, became physicians, and uh, studied law and poetry and linguistics and they wrote poetry, some of the great Hebrew poetry, Yehuda, Yehuda Halevi and Ibn Gvirol, whom streets are named after in Israel. They were poets that flourished during this period. I guess I have to keep this alive before it uh, goes dead here, huh? There we go, okay. Um, let me... Um, it, just feel free to ask a question or interject as I go here, okay? Because we still have a half hour and we're happy to have a discussion on that. Do you have something? Okay. Um, Maimonides, he was a court physician to one of the caliphs. I think it was even, I forget the caliph right now. Was it, was it, uh, was it, uh, Salahadin? Was he a caliph in Spain? I don't think so. No. But he was a. He I can was look a, it up when you get home. Huh? I can look it up when you get home. I don't this is a statue to his memory in Cordova. Yes. And by the way, I put him in here because he was opposed to Kabbalah. The Rambam, that's his, that's his uh, acronym, Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon. The Rambam. He was opposed to the Kabbalah because he was a rationalist, he believed in rational theology rational theological thinking and exegesis. He didn't like this mystical uh, Kabbalism. Um, that's be significant when I talk more about Kabbalism. But this is the Rambam. He lived from 1135 to 1204 in Spain. Well, he went to Egypt. Mm -hmm. He went to Egypt and to Israel. He left Yeah, he went to Egypt. He, went, he, he was in Fez. And he was in Fez, Morocco for a while. And in Egypt, um, very uh, well-known, influential rabbi who who was consulted by the the caliphs, by the the Muslim rulers in Spain. This is a very important quote by Bernard Lewis, worth contemplating. He says, under Islamic rule, the Jews were never free from discrimination, but only rarely subject to persecution. Get that part first. They were never free from discrimination. They were demis, but only rarely subject to persecution. Sometimes they were, but rarely. 
and is never as bad as in Christendom at its worst, nor ever as good as in Christendom at its best. In other words, the persecution under Islam was never as bad as in Christendom at its worst, which of course became the Holocaust. Nothing as bad as the Holocaust ever happened under Islamic rule, where they tried to kill all the Jews in the world. Uh, but nor was the Jewish situation ever as good under Islam as it was under Christendom at its best. When Christendom has been at its best, the Jew Jewish people have had the best situation ever. So it's kind of an interesting comparison, isn't it? Never as bad as in Christendom at its worst, nor ever as good as in Christendom at its best. That, does that ring true? <laughs> if you know the history. Uh, I include this in the PowerPoint. Just this. this is kind of a legacy of, of this period where the Jewish peoplehood, these, uh, these divisions became more prominent and emerged as more accepted or understood or clear during this period, Sephardic and Ashkenazi. And this was the age of, of Sephardic civilization on the rise and more developed. The Sephardic Jewish civilization was far more advanced in this period than the Ashkenazi was, except in religious matters. The Ashkenazi Jews were only studying religion at this time. They just studied Talmud, Talmudic studies and religious studies, whereas the Sephardic Civilization was branching out into linguistics and and uh, medicine and uh, poetry, secular poetry, not religious poetry, um, and so that these divisions kind of became clearer then. Um, and then Mizrahi, I think Mizrahi kind of came later, uh, but those are the kind of three divisions yet today, roughly, broadly, of uh, of Jewish civilization. Any comment on that? Well, when the safaris were in Spain, when you, in the old golden age, between the 1200 and 1400 before the expulsion, that was the golden age of Spain. They called the Spanish golden age, yeah. yeah. There was flores, architecture, poetry. Architecture, yeah. Well, they, yeah. Language, everything. It was the golden age. Yes. It was too bad. Yes, yes. And that's, <laughs> this is one of the influences that if you're familiar with the well, Arab you're world, you're all. Spain, or, see, I know. Are you? Yeah. I'm you're from, from Spain. Yes. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah, I see. I know a lot of. You're born people. there. Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> are you Jewish? Well, I think so, but. <laughs> 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 yeah, this was the age too of one the, the of the conversos. Mm -hmm. In my in my uh, thirty years of thirty years of Jewish ministry, I have met. I couldn't count them on one hand. I'd have to count them on two hands. Of conversos, descendants of conversos or moranos, who whose families came from, uh, who fled the persecution under the Inquisition or in Spain, fled to the New World, to the Americas, but had been converse, outwardly converted to Catholicism, but remained Jewish inside. But then, and so then their their children, grandchildren, lost their Jewish identity, but then their descendants later discovered. Like, what's this menorah in the attic? You know, <laughs> and what's this? What's this silver cup doing up in the attic? Oh, oh, your grandmother had that. You know, 
And then they found out that their grandmother was Jewish, and then they discovered that they were really Moranos, they were conversos. And wasn't, Helene, Helene wasn't was, uh, Moy, Moy and Alicia who were here in Denver yeah, years right, ago, right. they come from that background, I think. Yeah. No, he was Ashkenazi. He was Ashkenazi. But, but she, she, was, she was. She was. She yeah. she came from converso background, yeah. 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 It's a lot of, it's a lot of um, Sephardi Jews. They don't know, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, on your point of <laughs> linguistics and language, in Arab calligraphy, uh, I'm going to keep this alive by touching it. Um, if you've seen Arab calligraphy, the Arabs love their language. And they love it so much, they have this beautiful calligraphy. And it's often these big circular uh, patterns of, artistic patterns of, you know, of their language. It's like they love it and they dance with it, as it were, you know, the Arabic. And uh, Jewish people absorb this Arabic love of language and feeling deeper in love with Hebrew. And so the Sephardic Jewish people in that, in that ambiance began to love Hebrew in that way more than before, and wrote Hebrew secular poetry. Hebrew poetry about wine, women, and song, and nature. And, huh? you know, and, and making and making it beautiful, and making it a thing of a, a love affair with language. That was kind of one of the legacies of that period. Yeah, Ladino is a mess. Ladino. Me, mess the Hebrew and the Spanish, and all the Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's one of the poets... Uh, Yuda Ivan Gviro of Cordova. And here's one of his poems. Beautiful poem. His streets are named after him in Israel today. With the ink of its showers and rains, with the quill of its illuminating lightning, and the hand of its clouds, Autumn wrote a letter upon the garden in purple and blue. No artist could conceive of such things. And this is why the earth, grown jealous of the sky, embroidered stars in the folds of the flower beds. Nothing, uh, nothing about Judaism or Jewishness or religion or God or anything in there. It's just a poem about nature. It's just a nature poem in Hebrew. So now I get to the Kabbalah here, probably for the last 20 minutes, because uh, Judy asked about that, and I think there's, there's important things to think about in this. The Kabbalistic mysticism, I, I believe it's hard to get a lot of verification, maybe Helene and, or Chaim, if you have knowledge that would correct mine, please speak it forth. But I, I think that the, uh, the Kabbalah, as it developed, really had its origins in this period, in this Islamic period uh, in the 11th, 12th century. And I think it was because um, Jewish traders, <coughs> merchants, traveled with Arab merchants eastward all the way to India, uh, you know, Red Sea and then the Indian Ocean into India, and these Arab and Jewish merchants had contact with India. And I think they brought back into the Mediterranean world, into Spain, and into the Jewish communities, Hindu thinking, Hindu religious mystical thinking, because Kabbalah is really closer to Hindu mysticism and Hindu spirituality than it is to Judaism. It's not, Kabbalistic mysticism is not biblical. It's part of Judaism, but it's not biblical. It's, it's theology, it's philosophy is contra to the Bible. Uh, 
the Bible teaches that Hakadosh Baruch Hu Elohim, the Creator, created all things out of nothing. There was a time when there was nothing but God, and God created all things out of nothing, and He is separate from His creation. He is not bound in His creation. But the Kabbalah teaches a pantheism, which is Hindu, a pantheism where God is in everything. God is in nature. God is part of the spark of nature. The spark of God is in all of nature, and God is in. That's pantheism, um, and um, Kabbalah believes in the transmigration of souls, reincarnation, which is a Hindu idea. Karma, and even karma. Uh, well, I'll wait till I get to that to another slide here. But um, yeah, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Yeah, here's the slide on. See these trade routes to the east for Jewish merchants, often traveling with Arab merchants who encountered Hindu thought in India, which became part of the Kabbalah. See these trade routes. Um, it's this map has an angle on it where you look at the at the northwest corner there, upper left, that's Spain. And so the trade routes went from Spain, Al-Andalus, where Jewish Sephardic civilization, Jewish merchants had freedom to travel, and they did these trade routes down through the Red Sea and Caspian Sea and uh, down around the Horn of Africa, Arabian Sea, to Hind, India, and did trade there. And Jewish communities sprang up in India then, in on the uh, on the west coast of India, in Kerala, Cochin, India, there were there were Jewish communities, and so I I think that the source of that kind of pantheistic mysticism uh, was borrowed, influenced by India at this time, because um, the thought, the thinking, the philosophy is so similar to Hindu philosophy. Here's the main uh, uh, text of uh, the Kabbalah, the Zohar, which means the shining. Um, I think it was uh, Moses de Leon who uh, was credited with writing this. There was another main teacher of, uh, of the Kabbalah, Abraham Abu, Abu Lafia, in Spain. These were early proponents and teachers of Kabbalah. And I think the Zohar is attributed mostly to uh, de Leon. Moses de Leon, um, and it's a, it's a book of this mysticism, pantheistic mysticism, and uh, where God is very distant. God is not personal in Kabbalah, most Kabbalah. God is way off. He's the Ein Sof. You know, Ein, Ein Sof in Hebrew means uh, there's no end. The infinite one. The infinite one. The infinite, distant, way off God is so far away. He's so infinite. He's so great, he's so distant from us that they are, there are layers of uh, layers called svirot between the Ein Sof and us. And the task of humans is to try to, try to ascend and, and, and uh, through mysticism and meditation to ascend through these svirots and reconnect with the Ein Sof. That sounds so much like you know, Hindu meditation, doesn't it? Try to connect through chanting, through the, the mantra, the Om mantra, and to come into oneness with, with, the, with the spirit, the oversoul, whatever is out there, the eternal, you know, 
it's it's this kind of mysticism is much closer to that kind of Eastern mysticism than it is to Judaism for sure. Um, oh yeah, here's the picture of the here's Kabbalah's tree of life. So you have the Ain Sof up here, without end. That's the eternal, distant creator. But then you have these different spherot, uh, spheres, uh, and you know, foundation, glory, triumph, beauty, love, fear, intelligence, wisdom, the crown, the keter. The keter is the crown. Bina, chokhmah, pachad, chesed. Uh, Tiferet, Netzach, Triumph, uh, Yisod, Foundation, Glory, Hod, and then Kingdom, Malchut, and the and, and the mystical um, mystical meditation and mystical practice. Then sometimes meditating on the uh, the twenty two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Sometimes even chanting the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You see, it's so close to have a mantra. It's so close to Eastern mysticism. It's just kind of Eastern mysticism with a Hebrew veneer, with, with a Jewish veneer. The, the, the klipah, the, the peel on the outside is Hebrew, Jewish, but inside it's Eastern mysticism. Um, any comment or question on that? Yeah, I had a quick uh, yeah. question as far as um, mysticism. It sounds like more like they'll be doing these seances and chanting to somehow attain this eternal being. Was it something that they like they had to earn to do, or? Yeah, yeah, it's more like earning. It's like it's more like working your way through mysticism and through meditation and through uh, hard concentration gotcha. to to reach to a higher level of spiritual connection, connectedness with. With the Ain Sof, you know, it's like transcendental meditation that uh, the Beatles brought west in, 19, in the 1960s. Transcendental meditation, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. You know, you, tra you, you through meditation you get in connection with the divine, reconnect with the divine through meditation, find oneness with the divine. Um, in Hebrew, they call this these. There's there's klipot. Klipot's the Hebrew word for peelings, isn't it? Uh, klipot is the peelings of an orange. Yeah. yeah. Klipota ta, <laughs> klipota ta, tapuach or a, yeah. tapuz. Uh, so like peelings. And so what they say, some Kabbalistic teaching says, is that there's klipot. There's many peelings between the end self and you. There's klipot. And if you do if you do negative things, negative acts then the klipot get thicker, or more of them. But if you do good works, you do good positive things, then the klipot start to disappear. The klipot start to get thinner and disappear. So very much like karma. Very much like karma. You have good karma, bad karma. If you do good things and good works, you, you build up good karma. If you do negative, bad things, you build up bad karma. So just another connection with Eastern philosophy. Um, that's why it's dangerous. That's why now, you know, and there's been a revival of Kabbalah, not only among the Jewish people, but non-Jewish people. It was, it's uh, Philip Berg. You heard of Philip Berg? <laughs> the Kabbalah Center International in Los Angeles, where I live. He established this in uh, 1984. He's passed away now, but his I think his son 
and others are still running it now, but the, the, the Kabbalah Center International in Los Angeles was a big, a big revival of Kabbalah starting in the 80s, 90s, and on to today. And a lot of non-Jewish uh, seekers, including Hollywood movie stars like Madonna and uh, uh, others, took up Kabbalah because it's a, it's a mystical, they're hungry for mystical spiritual experience and Kabbalah seemed to offer that. And there's now 50 branches of the International Kabbalah Center of Los Angeles. There's 50 branches of that center around the world, worldwide. Wow. And many non-Jewish people are into it. Wow. Yeah. Um, I saw where the Tree of Life, they use it in tarot cards. The same tarot pattern. cards, yeah. yeah. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know too much about well, how Kabbalah would use tarot cards. They might... They use that same layout with their tarot cards. Do they? The same layout? Okay. Yeah. Could well so be. Could well be. And of course they use astrology. Of course, Judaism has been into astrology since Babylon. But astrology came into Kabbalah, too. So you got astrology, you got karma, you got reincarnation. A lot of just, a lot of just traditional, traditional, even Ashkenazi rabbis believe in reincarnation, right, Chaim? Yeah. Reincarnation. Um, so that entered into Judaism. Um, not biblical. It's not biblical. Bill, uh, yeah. part, of, part of the picture is that Judaism has been so rational uh, up until the last 30, 40 years ago. And people were hungry and were looking for yes. spiritual answers. Uh, the issue was that Kabbalah was basically off off the grid for most people because it was in Hebrew yeah. and and also you were instructed that you couldn't study Kabbalah until you were married and I think 40, 40 years old, 40 or years old. Yeah. and so then people popularize it and they say it's in English you can do it you know you can, you can tune into all of that stuff and took off like wildfire yeah that's it and it is in this age of you know post-Christian, post-modern, post-everything, uh, uh, people are hungry for spiritual experience, mm -hmm. the New Age movement, you know, so that, that's part of it. I, uh, I had some other further notes on this. Oh, this flipped again. How do you, how do you get it back when it flips? Oh, here we go. Okay. Um, oh, I went to a, Every year in L.A. they have an Israel festival in Los Angeles. There's a lot of Israelis in Los Angeles, 40, 50,000, 60,000. And they have a celebration of Israel every year. I usually go. And I went in 2017. Uh, Kabbalah had a booth there at the L.A. Fest festival. And this is the Hamsa Club. And the Hamsa, of course, is this amulet, the hand. It's, a, it's to protect against the evil eye. And these amulets are very much a part of mysticism uh, of Kabbalah as well. These, these Israelis were there and they were, they were selling their Hamsa Club t-shirts and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but I was going to say that there's a, a few notes here. There's a very fine line between uh, symbolism and mysticism. Very fine line. There is, there is symbolism that's biblical as far as numbers. The number seven, the number three, the number ten, the number twelve, 
have biblical symbolic value and meaning. That's that's biblical. And some gematria, numerology, is like that. It's it's symbolism. But if you move it too far and you start seeing the Hebrew letters and numbers as having a kind of a magical quality to them, then you're moving into mysticism. And moving into you know, amulets. I wrote here that you know uh, the fine line when it shifts to magic using amulets or talismans, the hamsa, uh, where you invest things or numbers or letters with magical power. Then you're then you're then you're into magic, not even religion anymore. It's magic where you're trying to gain power, some kind of spiritual power, through manipulating these forces, uh, cosmic forces. Um, as if there's there's cosmic forces that we can tap into through magic to control things, to change things for us. Usually, usually for the better for us, you know. It's usually self-centered. Um, so there's a very fine line. Some biblical numerology, gematria, is good. Some of it moves too far into magic and mysticism. So we always have to be discerning. So I think in evangelism, if you talk to people who are into Kabbalah, don't put it down. You just alienate them. Don't put it down, but ask them questions about it. You know, ask them questions. Well, you know, that move toward what's what's it really doing for you, and yeah, how's that working for you? And, uh, and then ask them questions and, and share more your story about how your what your relationship with Yeshua is doing for you, and how Yeshua changed your life, and it's going to be a better story than the ones they have. Um, and try to move toward evangelizing people into Kabbalah based on that. Um, oh, here's some modern applications. Applying the tree of life to uh, to chakras. Chakras are these, you know, in, uh, in yoga, in Eastern religion, chakras are these uh, energy energy lines in the body that you can tap into. And so some of the Kabbalahs, you know, in, in a kind of syncretism has applied it to uh, chakras uh, in the body to try to tap. It's all, it's all impersonal. It's all energy. Tapping into energy, tapping into cosmic forces. Because God's not personal. He's way off there, the Ain Sof. So you want to tap into energy and cosmic forces that, that get you greater connected to the cosmic realm, the spiritual realm. That's what it's all about. Um, whereas the Holy Spirit is more personal. Huh? Where the Holy Spirit is more personal. Yeah, whereas the Holy Spirit is personal. And through Yeshua, we know the Heavenly Father is personal. We have a personal relationship with Yeshua and with the Heavenly Father through Him. He's personal. It's not just some distant force, uh, impersonal force. Um, oh, you know about the red string? Yeah. On the wrist, yeah. that's popular in Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Now here again, that has a that has a biblical source. Uh, you see, I, I see pictures of Madonna wearing the red string. Do I have? Yeah. See, she's got. I think she has a red string on her. I had one picture where she had the red string on. Uh, but it has a biblical source. Genesis 38, when Judah is tricked by Tamar to have sex with her, she. 
You know, he thinks she's a prostitute on the side of the road, but she's, she's his uh, daughter-in-law. They have sex, she becomes pregnant. Um, he tricks her, he gets caught. Anyway, when the, when the children are born, Tamar's children are born, they're twins. It's uh, Peretz and uh, Zera. Peretz and Zera. Now, first, uh, first Zera came out of the of the womb, but then, and and when she came out of the womb, he he came out of the womb. The midwife tied a red string around her, his wrist, but then he went back in because the second one, Peretz, burst forth, and it came out first. That's why they named Peretz because he broke through, broke through, but. The red string on the wrist theme started then, and then there's a scarlet. Isn't there a scarlet cord with, with Rahab as well? Yeah. In the window. In the window, yeah. So the, it is a biblical theme, but see how here's an example of how you take a biblical theme and then make it a fetish, or an amulet, or a magical thing, or a talisman. Now, now it's like a talisman. It's like a. It's like a. Uh, it's a good luck thing. If you, in Kabbalah, if you believe in Kabbalah, you wear the red string. That's going to give you. A little bit more spiritual connection, a little bit more, uh, you know, apt to be in touch with the divine forces. Yeah. I have a little bit of a background that you do in the, I first came to the Lord in the mountains of Colorado. You did? But I had a, a Jewish stepfather named Bloomberg. Where? Named Bloomberg in Indiana okay. many years ago. And what, as you were talking about Romans 11, I've been in ministry and been to seminaries for years. I don't know when I have heard a sermon or heard us encouraged in theological classes to preach what's there. Did God reject his people? Yeah. And, Romans 9 through 11, yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, on the next page, um, it's... I just think... That the I struggled with that relationship so much because I think um, the Jewish offering and blessing of the whole world is so amazing, and it says, "For God's gift and His calling are irrevocable, mm -hmm. including the calling of His people." Mm -hmm. Does He not love them? My goodness. Who put his son among them to, yes. to to grow up? Yes. And it just breaks my heart because I tried to witness to my stepfather. Oh my goodness! It was yeah. really tough. Hard. Yeah. And, I know. And my mother was kind of back and forth. She grew up in a Protestant family, but she joined. On the Friday night evenings, mm -hmm. thing. So I just really feel like we, as Christians and particularly Christians in ministry, have a huge. I just was in New York for for years as a uh, chaplain in transportation, witnessing. Mm -hmm. And New York is one of the biggest uh, residences of Israel, other than Israel itself. Mm -hmm. And so there was just yeah. these opportunities. Well, that's what I hope this course will, will do is engage more. This is geared towards Christians, but it's, it's also will serve Messianic Jewish believers who want a deeper grounding in, their, in the Jewish story or in a refreshing on theology of the Jewish 
people uh, from a messianic standpoint, but primarily geared towards Christians to help more Christians engage the Jewish story, the Jewish world, the Jewish history, the Jewish story, and Romans 9 through 11, to engage that and understand it. Um, no. We're about done. Yeah, go ahead. If you can go back to that picture of... Um, Madonna? Yes. Madonna? Okay. So what does her shirt say? Huh? Kabbalists do it better. Kabbalists do it better. <laughs> Well, that between that and the and the red and the red string, and the red string. And tell me if this is if this is offensive or not. But I mean, I would never be offensive about it. But if they're wearing it, I'm going to use it. And and so you could say, tell me about how 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 do they? Yes, look ask better? them questions about it. What it's how doing do for them. Better? And with the red string, you could say, string, well, you know, you could tie that into. With the red string, you could tie it into the story in Genesis and start talking about Genesis and start talking about Judah. And maybe from Judah to the seed of Judah, who comes from the tribe of Judah, David and the son of David, and you could start a discussion that moves toward truth and Messiah by well, with using the red string as a point it. of contact. If they're wearing it, there's something there they believe about it. So yeah. So find out what they're believing yeah. about it. Find out what they believe about it. Ask them questions about it. Asking questions is the greatest kinds of evangelism there is. Yeshua was the greatest question asker. Ever. In fact, somebody, somebody did a study. How many times Yeshua was asked a question in the Gospels? And they, I didn't do it myself, but I was told. 183 times Yeshua was asked questions in the Gospels. And like 180 of those times, He answered those questions with another question. Well, let me ask you a question. Or He told a story. <laughs> and uh, that's how to do event. This I have one more slide, which is kind of funny, so I'll show it to you. Um, postmodern American style. This guy in the left says, "Whoa! You're telling me you studied Kabbalah for decades and never once used Kabbalah water, essential oils, or red string bracelets, or attended A-list celeb classes? What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> Whoa! This American postmodern Kabbalah, you know." <laughs> Red string bracelets or attended A-list celebs classes, essential oils, and here's an old an old school religious Jewish man. He's studying all the books, you know. <laughs> anyway, we need to close because of time. But thank you. And uh, if you if you think you're interested in this, want to give give one to somebody that is interested. The new website that's on here for this is still under construction. It's open. You can go there, but it's not finished yet. But it will be soon. And Dale, one more question. You you brought up Kabbalah because it's so there, there's so much of it. Is that it's why prevalent. It's popular. Prevalent? Okay. It's a popular popular religion. Popular New Age. And in Israel. Okay. And uh, big in, in Israel and, and in the states. And have you run run, to, run into it, Judy, with anybody? A little bit. Yeah. Rabbi's wife is into it. Yeah. I think the idea, Gail, too, is that you know when we're talking about Jewish evangelism, there's you know we don't want to make the assumption that well they're Jewish so they're all about the Bible, the prophecy, and, you know this kind of thing. They might be about none of that, but being Jewish means well you must be you know Kabbalah and that kind of thing. That's part of in their mind. That's part of being Jewish. Right. I think that'd be a fair way to say. Yeah, that. well, that's, that's right. For, that's when you're good. talking about talking yeah. Jewish Thank people. Thanks, David. Yeah. Yeah.
I think a lot of New Agers also mix Kabbalah with all kinds of other stuff. It was just kind of a smorgasbord. Yeah. And it could be an entry point, though, for some people. Yeah. Entry point. That's important. The red string can be an entry point. But there's other entry points in Kabbalah. That is points of conversation. Where to start a conversation. Talking about Kabbalah and be, be alert for a point of conversation. And that reminds me about something. And start a conversation that moves toward talking about truth and about the true God. And enter, enter into it that way. Yeah. Um, um, the rabbis who were predicting that the Messiah would come before the April 9th elections were into the mysticism or Kabbalah. And um, I don't know if you have, I mean, they predicted it before Purim. And so, um, of course, elections are coming up next week. Now, have you heard any more of that? Because, I mean, they, they say you will be revealed before the elections. The Messiah? Yeah. They've had predictions like that before. <laughs> and uh, we'll see. The same thing is a pray for Israel. Pray for the elections in Israel. Pretty, they're pretty uh, uh, important right now. Yes. So. But I thought it was appropriate because if they're the rabbis are mystics during the Kabbalah, mm -hmm. the um, Antichrist is a man. He's not Jesus, and so he's you know um, going to be in charge in a bad way. And so it's, it, if if that should happen, his coming out of mysticism is kind of appropriate, you know, because he is just a man. He's not the mm -hmm. Lord. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I didn't know that there were false religions within Judaism, like the Kabbalah. Oh yeah, yeah. And though Kabbalah began with it in the Ash in the Sephardic civilization, it entered into the Ashkenazi civilization too very quickly. The Hasidic movement, Baal Shem Tov, they're deep into Kabbalah. Right. They're Ashkenazis, right. but they're deep into Kabbalah. Right. I think we're yeah. But just one more comment along those lines. Breaking Israel News has a lot of those articles that they report on the Kabbalists, rabbis, and there are all these predictions that they're making. One article recently said that they were they know about Christian Zionists and they know how we support them, and they're trying to draw um, believers, Messianic believers, um, Christians into into Kabbalah, and they've been told, oh no, you know they won't do it, and they're yeah. just. They're, they don't know why. They don't understand why we want to join them in that. So, Very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Bill. The truth, folks, is uh, if you've been around Bill for any length of time, you know we can spend several hours listening, uh, interacting with him. Uh, we'll get to do some of that Shabbat, although in a somewhat different format. Uh, Bill would be sharing the Word of God with us on Shabbat. Um, I have several of these which are the engaging uh, the Jewish world. Uh, if you like, uh, take those. Um, one more comment, if I may, f uh, about Kabbalah. Not that I'm a big heap expert on that, but I've seen that Kabbalah uh, runs the gamut uh, from the things from things that are relatively innocuous, in other words, not real dangerous um, ideas that uh, about 
mystical ideas about the Bible uh, and goes from that into, into a cult um, so that you have the Kabbalistic rabbis um, who are known to have performed miracles and you have to think, you have to recognize that supernatural power comes from one or two sources. It is not neutral. It's either from God or it's from the evil one. And you'll find that the Kabbalistic rabbis have engaged um, in magic and performing all kinds of uh, incantations. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of stories about Kabbalistic rabbis who've, who've gone meshugi, literally lost their minds because of that. Uh, and so people who are truly spiritually hungry don't understand Crazy. the fact that... Huh? Someone didn't know what Meshuggah meant. Crazy. Uh, people who are spiritually hungry don't understand that as you shift through Kabbalah, you're coming to very, very dangerous territory. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, remember that occult is about two things, gaining power and gaining knowledge other than what God gives you. If you're not willing to receive it from God, you'll get it from the evil one, and people will get it any way they can, which is where you get occult and you get Kabbalah, which becomes uh, dangerous mysticism. By the way, uh, mysticism is not necessarily a bad word. It just means something that's beyond your rational thinking. Scripture is full of mystical ideas, but... Uh, something to, to, to realize that people are hungry. That That's the bottom line. Yes, ma'am. It just reminds me of the secretism of the Old Testament. Right. The mixing of the religions, you know, to the point where the people are so deceived and they practice different types of things and to the point where they offer their children to Molech yeah. or they do all kinds of things and so uh, the Israelite religion becomes an Israelite religions right. with all kinds of forms to it and I see a parallel with you know those uh, Jews who are drawn to Towards Kabbalah, it's it's really a spiritual thing. Well, the Israelites thought the same, uh, where the practices of the Canaanites were spiritual things. They were inviting, and they ended up following in those directions. But there were always consequences, right. and so yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the danger, like you say. What happened? You know, they thought, okay, then after a while, you forget the true religion and you forget the true God. And so uh, Jews who enter into uh, Kabbalistic practices may have uh, you know, practiced their Judaism in a very healthy way for part of their lives, and when they enter into that, they, they you know, deviate and therefore yeah. forget. So very, for me, it sounds like uh, you know, the, the appeals of the Canaanites who were in the land, and Israel paid a heavy price at the hands of Assyrians, Babylonians, because they, they sought other practices that were not intended to be for them. Good warning. Yeah. And that's something that's very appealing to a lot of Jewish people, because the notion of Yeshua being the way 
is something that really uh, bothers the, the mind because their inclination is to say, no, there are all kinds of different ways to God. Uh, and, and so, same kind of notion, syncretism. I can come to God this way, this way, this way. And um, By the way, part of what I wanted to leave you with is the fact that uh, I'm sure, as Bill was sharing and will be sharing Shabbat, that you're probably thinking, okay, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. Let me encourage you sometime before you leave tonight to write down any questions you have um, and either and, and give it to Bill directly as, uh, or if we can email it to you. Uh, sure. And, and perhaps um, find some kind of an opportunity um, to get your questions answered. So, by the way, here is a final thought. I mean, really final. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only dumb question is a question you don't ask. Amen. Okay? Because most likely, you're not the only one who has that question. Probably two or three others do. Kabbalah is a Hebrew word. Can you tell us what it means? Uh, it, it means that which is received. Le uh, kabel. Uh, to, to receive, so it's been something passed on. It's a good word. Like Kabbalat Shabbat. Kabbalat Shabbat, and also uh, the good news of Yeshua was something that we have received. Like Paul says, it's a good word. Unfortunately, it's... Um, yeah. Uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 24, it says in here that... Uh, about doctrine it's in which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak. So the thing is, it's kind of the depth of Satan, all this spiritual stuff. It, it, it is, and, and that's why people who have dealt with it have gotten power and, and have also become controlled. Um, I, I remember having a conversation with, with a Russian Jewish fellow who became a uh, member of the Hasidic community, he said that he stood from here to here uh, next to Schneerson and that his back his back pain disappeared. Wow, really? And I'm not surprised no. because it Supernatural power. Yeah, so um, let's finish. Bill, would you finish for us with a word of prayer? For sure. Hallelujah, Father. Yes, we look to you, Lord, and we thank you that uh, we have received Kabbalah, the greatest gift from you, Yeshua the Messiah. And through him, we have connection with you. We have access to you. We are connected to the true vine as branches. And through the Ruach HaKodesh, we don't need uh, uh, what Kabbalah offers. We have much greater direct connection Amen. to you through Yeshua and the Ruach HaKodesh. We thank you for that. We pray for all of us that as we uh, reach out and as you bring Jewish people across our paths, that you would just allow us to deeply enter into relationship with them, uh, bond with them, love them, and uh, have wisdom to know what those entry points are for conversation whether about Kabbalistic ideas or any other ideas of common ground about religion or faith or needs or whatever, that they be points of 
conversation that we could use to tell your stories, tell our own personal stories of our faith and tell the stories of Scripture to engage Jewish people uh, with your word and with the goal to see them encounter Messiah and come to faith. So help us and guide us all and direct us all, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.